Well, good morning. My name is uh, Neil Chota. I'm the pastor of Church Life. And um, as was mentioned, please go to the book of Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse uh, 12. Now, when I was younger, I grew up in the metropolis of Oshawa, Ontario. Huge, huge place. It eclipses Toronto. I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, you know, we, you know, Indian background. So the nearest Indian grocery store at the time was in downtown Toronto. And remember my parents coming to uh, us on Saturday morning saying, okay, we're going to go to Gerard Street which meant we're going to go to the place where all the Indian restaurants are, Indian groceries, a couple of movie theaters to watch a Bollywood movie. And uh, we were excited. So that's what we did on that Saturday morning. And uh, when we got to Gerard Street, oh, it was fantastic. The aroma of the Indian food. And then we, we, you know, my parents would buy these little Indian sweets. They were so good. We'd go and watch a Bollywood movie, even though I, to this day I don't understand the language, which is quite unfortunate, but I learned how to read subtitles very quickly. That was a great gift I have. And, uh, and then afterwards, we go to the Indian grocery store. And then I remember my mom, she would be uh, walking around and buying groceries, and then she would pick up some coconuts. And, you know, they were good quality Indian coconuts, okay? You want a good coconut? It was an Indian coconut, okay? And then uh, she, she grabbed a few. And then when she did that, oh, I was so happy because I know what that meant. She was going to make a, a dessert or something really sweet with coconuts. And I absolutely love what she made. And I can even taste it right now. I remember, I remember coming home and uh, my dad would take the coconuts. And, I, you know, I was four or five years old and I thought my dad was like, like Superman, the way he opened up the coconut. I mean, he just opened it like that in one shot. Underneath, there would be a container and collecting the coconut water. My brothers and I would fight over who got the coconut water because we loved it so much. It's very good, nutritious, actually. So it's a plug-in. This is a plug-in for coconut water. It was very good. So I remember my dad, he took the coconut, he opened it, and the water went into the container, and we grabbed the water. And my dad said, stop! I'm like, why is he stopping us from drinking nutritious water? Why would he do that? And he said, stop. I said, why? What's wrong? And then he said, look at this. He opens up the coconut, coconut and it is rotten on the inside. There was a smell that just permeated through the room that was absolutely disgusting. And now I'm four or five. I'm like, how can this happen? And I said, my dad said, you know what? It can happen. And my father said, what, what looks good on the outside may not be good on the inside. In today's passage of scripture, we are looking at Jesus coming to a fig tree and then to the temple in Jerusalem. What looked good on the outside was actually rotten and not good on the inside. So we're looking at the book of Mark 11, 12 to 26. Now the way Mark writes this passage of scripture, he writes about a fig tree then he writes about the temple, then he goes back to the fig tree. So there's a, um, relig there's a Christian term for this. You want to know what it is? It's called a Markin sandwich. That's what he learned in Bible college. Spent $70,000 and he learned how to make a sandwich. Okay, so basically we have a fig tree passage, we have a temple passage, and we go back to the fig tree. This is the technique where Mark interrupts a story with what appears to be an unrelated story, but it actually is there to help tell the fundamental story. So let's stand as we read about this Mark and Sandwich. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. You may be seated. So the title of my message today is Cleansing the House of Prayer. So we're just going to dive right into the passage of Scripture. So here we have in verse number 12, this is the next day. This is the day after Jesus had come into Jerusalem, got the red carpet treatment, and he came in as the king. And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, they were, all, they were leaving the place of Bethany where they stayed the night. And next part of the verse says, Jesus was hungry. Now, we have to remember Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. So, yes, he was hungry. So, what, what does he do? Like everybody else, he looks for food. So, in verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. So Jesus sees this fig tree, and the fig tree is actually a symbol. It's symbolic for Israel. Symbolizes Israel. He looks for fruit. He sees leaves, but he doesn't see anything on it that is fruit. So, like, you're thinking, this is Jesus. He knows everything. And if it wasn't the season for figs, why did he go to the fig tree? So fig trees um, in, in the Middle East, usually in the fall, is, is the season. However, in the spring, fig trees have, have, after the fruit is given, leaves come. So the fig tree by now should have had these little knobs or little buds called pagan. And these little buds were edible. And these buds should have been present when Jesus approached the tree. And this is what Jesus says after finding no fruit on it, or those buds. He says, may no one ever eat from you again. No one, may no one ever eat from you again. Finding no figs or buds to eat, Jesus actually curses the fig tree. This is Jesus' only destructive miracle in the Bible. Well, now, why did he do this? Well, he did this because this was an object lesson. 
He was teaching the disciples, and he's teaching us as well. And what he is teaching, he's teaching hypocrisy. Hypocrisy of the tree, because here it is. Looks good on the outside, but there's nothing there. Hypocrisy for Israel, because especially when we come to the next part of this passage, talking about it looked good on the outside, Israel did, but on the inside, there was something wrong. It was rotten. And this is the hypocrisy that Jesus is teaching us and his disciples. So they go to the temple area, and Jesus and his disciples enter it, and this passage of scripture is quite different, this part of passage of scripture. Usually when we see Jesus, we see Jesus, you know, he's healing people, he's gentle, feeding the 5,000, but this is a different side of Jesus that we're about to see, and that is the righteous judgment side of Jesus. So on reaching the temple, now remember, before this passage of scripture, last week, we looked at when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he went to the temple courts and he was evaluating. This is the result of the evaluation. So upon reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He then overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Another gospel says that uh, Jesus actually had a whip. Now, he wasn't whipping people, but he was using this to drive people out. It's like you're using the temple as a shortcut. You're doing this, you're doing that. This is not what, what the temple was for. And what Jesus was doing, it was fulfilling a prophecy found in the book of Malachi 3. The temple was like the fig tree. It bore no fruit. And the temple in Jerusalem was the biggest building in the city. It was like the CN Tower to Toronto. Okay? It was, prom it was a prominent building. And the temple is very unique. It was a totally different structure from anything that has ever been built on the face of this planet. See, some people say, oh, well, the temple is like the church and synagogue. But it's not. It's totally different. The temple in Jerusalem was uniquely built. Absolutely uniquely built. And it was given instructions on how to build it by God. So you had something called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was where the high priest would come in and offer the sins, the atonement for the people. But only at certain times could he come. Then beyond that, you had the area or the court of the Jewish males where they would worship. Beyond that, you have the area or the court of the Jewish women. And beyond that, you would have the area or the court of the Gentiles where those who were Gentiles, not Jews, would come Non-Jews would come and worship the living God. Jesus is upset because worship cannot take place properly. And all of this that was described, the buying and the selling, the money changers, the merchandise, the people making it a shortcut, that was all help happening in the court of the Gentiles. This is what was happening there. And what was taking place is that people from faraway lands would come and want to worship the living God. Jews would come from all over. And they would bring their sacrifice, and the priest would look at that sacrifice, that animal, and, and if it was proper, he would let it go. But if it wasn't proper, it won't be accepted for sacrifice. It won't be accepted for worship. But that's okay. You can find another animal. Where are they going to find the other animal? Another animal? They've come from far away. Well, it's convenient because in the court of Gentiles, you could buy an animal. You could buy a sacrifice. There's a big service charge. It's astronomical pricing. But you can have a sacrifice, and you can bring it to the priest, and it's already pre-approved. 
Okay. But then you had to give the temple tax. Well, the temple tax could only be given in the temple currency. And these people are coming from faraway regions to give to the temple in worship. Oh, but wait, you got to convert your money in the proper currency. But don't worry. We, the temple leadership said, don't worry. We have a place in the court of Gentiles where you can do currency exchange. It's a bureau de change happening right there. But the monetary exchange was astronomical. It was unbelievable. The pricing. Oh, and the temple's in the middle of the city. It's okay. You, you're over there and you want to go over here? That's okay. Use the temple as a shortcut. That's okay. No problem. Go through the court of the Gentiles. It doesn't matter. It's the temple. It's fine. And the temple leadership said it was fine. What they were doing is they were taking the place of worship and they were making it a mockery. It was becoming absolutely rotten. Absolutely rotten. And that was the heartbeat of the Israelite nation. This was not supposed to happen. And that is why Jesus is angry and he's upset that God had given the temple to the people as a place of worship, as a place of prayer. But this is what the people have done. And Jesus goes and he starts to teach. And as he taught, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. What he's doing here is he's actually quoting two Old Testament books. The first one is Isaiah 56, 7. And it says the, the prophet writes on as the Holy Spirit is instructing him, as God is instructing him. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. This is the temple. This is Jerusalem. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted, accepted at my altar in the temple. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, whether you're Jewish or whether you are Gentile. This was not taking place. What was taking place is what Jesus said in Jer quoted, quoting Jeremiah. Has this house which bears my name, which is the name of God, which is Jesus, has become a den of robbers to you. I have been watching, declares the Lord. They made it a place where thievery was taking place, where people were robbing literally one another in the name of the temple, in the name of God. And this was rotten to the core. And Christ was judging in the temple. He was judging the leadership. He was judging the people. He was judging Israel. This was a preview of what was going to happen 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. The Roman Empire had enough of Israel and comes in and literally destroys the entire place, including the beautiful temple that was supposed to be to God. This is a preview of the judgment that was going to take place because God's hand of blessing was going to be removed. It had to be. God could not bless this type of sin. God doesn't bless sin. Christ was judging this. Now, there's a couple of reactions to what Jesus was doing. The first one, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Other gospel writers and commentators put also the Herodians. Remember the Herodians? They were the political clout. They hated what Jesus was doing. Absolutely hated him. And it's time that we're going to plan to kill him. And he's going to be dead in the next couple of days. Because they feared him. Why did they fear him? The other reaction was from the people. The whole crowd 
was amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Finally, somebody is standing up and saying that this is not supposed to happen in the temple of God. This is not supposed to happen in the house of prayer. That is why the people were so happy at what Jesus was doing. And that is why they were amazed about his teaching. So evening comes, and Jesus and his disciples go out of the city. Why did they go out of the city? Lots of commotion happening in Jerusalem. He wouldn't have a break. The other reason is people are plotting against Jesus. It's time to leave for the safety of the disciples. Let's go back to Bethany. So they stay the night in Bethany. Next morning, they leave. They're going to Jerusalem again. They pass the fig tree. This time, it is completely withered from the roots. Remember the fig tree? Earlier, the day before, Jesus had this destructive miracle. He curses the fig tree. As soon as Jesus cursed the fig tree, that destructive miracle, instantaneously, the fig tree died. And this is the result of that. It has withered from the roots. And Peter sees this, and he is he's astonished. And he says, Rabbi, look, exclamation mark. When you see a couple of exclamation marks in Scripture, you need to look at it. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It has totally withered. Peter remembered what happened the day before. Now, Jesus does not in any way interpret the event, but the meaning is obvious. Jesus' predicted judgment on the temple will come to pass as surely the prediction of the withering of the fig tree. The tree represents Israel. It looked good on the outside, but on the inside, it wasn't bearing fruit, much like the fig tree. Israel had proven herself to be unfruitful with respect to God's purpose for her. Her worship to God had become hypocrisy. So it was to be a place of prayer for all nations. As the fig tree was judged, so was the nation of Israel. So were the people. So were the temple. Jesus responds to the disciples. And he says this, have faith in God. He says this as a command, and this is a command not just for the disciples, but for us as well. Have faith in God. And what Jesus is actually saying is trust in God. Trust in God. Trusting. R.C. Sproul says this about trusting God. Trusting God is the obligation of every creature made in the image of God. It is a moral, ethical, spiritual duty. Because not to trust God is to impugn the integrity of his word, his promises, and his character. Jesus uses this incident of the fig tree and the events of the temple to give a lesson on faith and a lesson on prayer. The source of the power in performing the miracle is God. He must be the object of our faith. The command is to have faith in God. This is sad for Israel because they did not. It's sad because for the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple shows Israel's infidelity, lack of trust, lack of faith in the God that they should have been worshiping in spirit and in truth. We go to verse 23. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, when Jesus usually says, truly I tell you, it's something that we need, to, we, we need to look at. Truly I tell you. And 
he says this, he starts talking about a mountain, a mountain going and throwing itself into the sea. This was a familiar rabbinical saying concerning uprooting mountains. Now, Jesus did not physically you know, pray for a mountain to be put into the sea. He didn't do that. It's not recorded in scripture. Could he have? Yes, he could have because he is God. But the problem is many times we will take this part of the verse and we will create our own theology of it, saying that if you have enough faith, then you can have any prayer answered. Yes, it talks about believing. It talks about praying that it will be done for them. But this is in the context, and remember I keep on talking about context, it's in the context of the will of the Father. It's in the context of the will of God. Yes, we pray, we, we, are, we become people full of faith and we pray according to the will of God. We go to verse 25 and 26. Uh, when you go to verse 25, and by the way, verse 25 is drawn out of Matthew 6, 14. And the words of Jesus to the disciples, you know, the Our Father part of the prayer. It's drawn out of Matthew 6, and it is actually a parallel verse to, to verse 14. Matthew 6, 15, what it says in verse 14, in some of your Bibles, you may have a verse 26. Mark doesn't include that, but that is included in the Gospel of Matthew. The passage is all about forgiveness. The forgiveness it doesn't have to do with our salvation. It has to do with forgiving one another or our sins. Now, there is a warning here that those who do not forgive, that if they have something against anyone, you have to forgive them. Because if you don't, then God will not forgive your trespasses. See, forgiveness is interlinked with the gospel. God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others are connected. So Jesus takes the fig tree, the temple, and the fig tree again, and then he's talking about what's good on the outside, but on the inside, it's not so good. So as we've looked at this sandwich, let's take a look at what God is teaching us today. The big idea for today is an effective prayer life must exhibit four qualities in God's temple. What is God's temple? We are the temple of God. We are the house of prayer. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul states that, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God's temple is us. We must communicate with God. Prayer is what began your faith journey with Jesus Christ. And prayer is the only thing that is going to sustain you in this life. It's the communication with God. And if we do not have an effective prayer life, then we become like the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We become like that fig tree. We look good on the outside, but on the inside, not at all. Remember the coconut? Good on the outside, but then on the inside, it was rotten. Instead of a sweet aroma to God, we become a putrid stench to him. May we be a beautiful aroma to God. May we have an incredible prayer life, effective prayer life. And Jesus teaches us a few things. First thing is an adoration of God. The temple was in existence for people to come and to give worship unto God, to adore him, to adore God for what he's done in his attributes. Throughout the history of the world, God has been there for the people. Look what God did for the Israelites 
brought them through the Red Sea. God was constantly there for them through every horrific trial. God has been with us through every single thing throughout church history. And he has always been there with us. But do we adore him? Do we thank him? Do we adore him for his grace, for his love, for his mercy, for his power, for his strength? Do we take time as people, do we adore him? Do you know it's possible to fake adoration? Do you know that's possible? And I've seen it. And I don't mean adoration like you're putting up your hands in church. I'm not saying about demonstrative worship or anything like that. But you can fake adoration. You know, I was at Bible college and I saw fake adoration. I did. At Bible college. It happened usually in the springtime. It did. It was quite unique. So there was, you know, these couples and, and there would be a certain section, you know, in chapel. And it would be interesting because whatever song was played, their hands would be up. Especially the ladies. Because I remember four couples getting engaged at the same time. And then the girls, they're, they're going like this in the worship. <laughs> it was so bright. Okay, the light hit all the rings, hit me in the face. That's why I wear glasses. <laughs> you know, and whatever the song was, it could be like, I don't know. I, I, like whatever the song was, they just wanted to raise the hand. Because they got us ring by spring. Many guys go to Bible college to get their MRS. I'm not talking about masters of religious studies. Literally, the MRS. But did you know that we could fake adoration? We could do it. That's what was happening at the temple. There was this fake adoration for God. Psalm 89, 8 says, we adore him for his faithfulness. Ephesians 1, 7, we, we, we adore him for his redemption of us, the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. We, we thank him for his steadfast love, which is better than life. And we, have to, we need to adore him. That wasn't happening at the temple. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and this is one of those sermons that are, it's reflective, okay? It's not going to be, you're not going to have a fuzzy feeling after you leave here, okay? It's going to be like looking at it and looking at our lives right now. Do we adore God in our prayer life? Do we take time or do we just directly go to him for an ask him for something and he's like Santa Claus? Do we adore God? Secondly, repentance of sin. This is not the repentance for our salvation, but this is repentance because, because we're in life. We are around sin. And it's that battle between flesh and the spirit, flesh and the spirit, flesh and the spirit that we always have to face. And, and do we go to God? And do we actually, are we remorseful? Do we go to him and do we repent and say, God, we have done this? Because repentance draws us closer to God, renews us each and every day. The psalmist writes, that God gives us mercies and renewing every day. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. That if we confess our sins, we obtain mercy. None of that was happening at the temple. They were not repenting of the sins, but they were actually committing sins in the temple courts. There was no repentance. There was no sorrow. It was supposed to be a place where you could encounter God, but they were encountering and committing sin and impeding themselves from worshiping. Do we prevent ourselves from confessing our sins after repenting? Do we just sin and then we just gloss over it? It'll be okay. God didn't see that. Do we do that? Are we as guilty as the leaders of the temple were in our own spiritual lives? Next one. Faithful petitions. 
Look at the way it's written. It's not faithful petitions. It's faithful of petitions. What I'm trying to say is petitions, prayer requests that are full of faith. Do we have faith? Do we believe in God that he will meet our needs according to his will? Thomas didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus then came to Thomas and he just said, believe. Do we just believe? Or do we doubt? Matthew says, ask, seek, and knock where you will find. And the door will be opened. We must come to God in faith in our prayer, believing according to his sovereign will. We believe in being individuals full of faith as we have these petitions. That's why on every Sunday morning, there's an elder and his wife here that will pray for you, join you with your faith for a request. That's why on, Saturday, on Tuesday mornings, staff come together and we pray full of faith. That's why the elders on Wednesday nights come together and pray full of faith. That's why we have so many prayer groups in all language groups coming to God in faith. But do you come to God in faith? None of that was happening at the temple. For their petitions were being given without any faith. It was lip service. Do we sometimes do that, have lip service? Are we so culturally bound in the Christian world that that becomes our culture? That, yeah, we come to church because that's what we've done for generations. We just come. That's a way of life. It's like brushing our teeth. That's what we do. But do we actually have faith? Do we actually have the faith to go to God in prayer and the request that we have from according to his sovereign and beautiful will? Do we do that? Do we, or do we pay lip service when it comes to our faith? Lastly, love for all people. In verse 25, as the people stand and are praying, It says, from your heart, you must have love. And if anything, if anyone has done something to you, you need to forgive them. That is what God says. You need to forgive them. We have to have the love of God within us to love all others, to forgive. You know, if we don't do that, do you know what we're saying? We're saying, God, what that person did to me was far worse than what I ever did to you, God. That's what we're saying when we don't forgive another person. That is absolutely, I'll use a very grammatical word here or, or a, a very important word, maybe theological. That's what you call stupid. Okay, that is absolutely ridiculous that you're going to God and say, God, that person has sinned against me more than I've ever done anything to you. That's what we do when we do not forgive one another. We're taking the forgiveness he has given us and throwing it in the garbage. We must love one another to forgive. First John says, beloved, let us love one another for the love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in this passage of scripture, the religious leaders were blatant in their hatred for others. These were individuals, they were innocent, coming and wanting to worship. And what do they do? They love they love their position. They love their money more. They're coming here to ask God in prayer. But they impeded them. They didn't love the people. They definitely didn't love the Gentiles because the outer court was made for the Gentiles to worship. This is what they were saying to the Gentiles. 
sorry, no, you can't come. No, 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 you can't. Even though specifically in the Old Testament it said those who were Gentiles can worship the living God. Where are they supposed to worship if they can't worship in the temple? This is what they were basically telling the Gentiles. You can go to hell. That is what they were saying to them. But we must have a love for all people. We must forgive. To be effective in our prayer life, we must have that spirit of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. So the question is, do you love everyone? Are you harboring something against another individual and you do not forgive them with the love of Jesus Christ? That is not what we are called to. We are called to love. We are called to forgive. God calls us to have an effective prayer life. We are called to bear fruit. We are called to be God's temple, his prayer house. We are called to have effective prayers. The adoration of God, the repentance of our sin, faithful petitions, and love for all people. Where are you in this? Where are you? Reflect right now, just for a moment. Where are you in this? Because God calls us to something better. That's a relationship with him. But we need to have effective prayer lives, which is communication with God. Prayer is what gives us life. Prayer is what lets us live. Prayer is what is going to make you go from one day to another. Otherwise, you are weak and you will get nowhere. Remember the coconut? When you open up a good coconut, it is a beautiful aroma. But if it's a bad one, it's a horrible stench. May our lives be a beautiful aroma to God and not a stench. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture. We thank you that it is used, O oh God, to encourage us, but also to correct us, O oh God. And Father, while this is a message that is very different in what Jesus has done within the concept of the fig tree and the temple, Lord God, we just pray. We come to you right now. May we be individuals with effective prayer lives because you have called us to become houses of prayer that we can pray to you. That communication is so vital that we can, we can speak to you and you speak to us. That it is what will help us in life, in the world that we live in that is so full of sin and wants to entangle. But God, prayer is the only thing that will give us strength. And God, as we've asked those questions this morning, first those questions were to me before I spoke this message, but to all of us, what are we like on the inside? What are we on the inside? Lord, may we be a beautiful aroma to you. May we pour ourselves out like a drink offering unto you, O God. May our life be full of prayer. May it be effective. Because that is what you have called us to
May you receive all the glory and honor and praise. Help us, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.